Thank you for tuning into the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hey everybody, we got a good one lined up for you on this one. Episode 47 of the First Gen Hunter podcast is all about squirrel hunting, all about conservation, all about squirrel hunting dogs, and just a really good time catching up with our buddy Alex Gruen from East to West Hunts, who is co-hosting this one for me in the absence of our good friend Brandon from over at Hunt Fish Life. He had uh, some family obligations to attend to while we recorded this one. But even in his absence, we had a great show. And uh, to be honest with you, this is one that I've really been looking forward to releasing. We recorded it, oh, maybe three, three and a half weeks ago. And uh, we talked to a guy that I've been following for a little while now on social media, Mr. Marcus Gray. And Marcus is a wildlife biologist. And uh, most recently, although, yes, he's done a lot of work in... Uh, some of the you know typical things, areas where you would expect a wildlife biologist uh, to be working and doing. Uh, he most recently has uh, been focused on working with pollinators. And pollinators, as we're going to talk about in this episode, are critically important to the ecosystems that we love to hunt in. And it's really important if we're going to be good conservationists that we have a whole picture idea and focus on how we can make these places better these ecosystems healthier to support not just the game that we love to tag and bag but all the other critters that call it home and make it a balanced healthy ecosystem and that really begins at the foundation there with his work with pollinators so we're going to talk all about that but then of course we're going to shift over to the focus of uh, the episode which is squirrel hunting and man is there a lot to pick up here so many great tips and and just a, a a good conversation about squirrel hunting in general you know why it's important why people should be into it why uh we shouldn't just view it as something to help us be better at hunting you know deer or elk or or moose or something like that 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 more people are interested in but truly the value of pursuing these critters as a target game species themselves and uh i I just really thoroughly enjoy this conversation with marcus definitely somebody we hope to get back on the show uh, many times in the future just a really thoughtful guy and i think you're going to agree with that but before we get to that we're going to give you your tip of the day and uh it's going to be themed on conservation now i'm not here to lecture you on you need to do this this and this uh truthfully i haven't done enough of that to um Uh, really be able to uh, do that great of a job other than some general rules that I've learned in my training as a science teacher and biology teacher more specifically I guess and uh, from talking to other biologists but uh, what I'm going to tell you is a little trick that can help on the property that you're hunting I just literally got off the phone with somebody who um, told me that uh, he just found out that his hunting property has about 20 acres of CRP on it uh, and uh, it's going away <laughs> all of it it's getting tilled uh, for the next uh, year or two but he said then the plan is to re-enroll 
that and more back into it. So hopefully in the long run it works out well for him. But uh, that story may sound familiar to you because maybe on your own property that you like to hunt, maybe you've uh, seen a similar thing come about. I know it's definitely happened. On one of the properties that I like to hunt, There's there's been some habitat removal there. And, uh, you know, that that hurts as a hunter, but when you really think of the bigger picture of what does it do to that ecosystem, uh, that's that's kind of a gut punch as well, and, and even more so, I would say, than, than what does it mean for as far as hunting goes. And so one of the ways that I think we can all help people build a deeper connection to the land, um, and really that's what it's going to take, right, to, to get people to... to find value in a way that is just different than dollar signs and uh that's that's hard to do and it's hard to justify too when you're paying property taxes and you're paying uh you know it, when, when it's literally just costing you money to have it they you gotta see value in other things and one of the ways that you can help a landowner draw a deeper connection to that is to show them what their land provides and uh what, what I'm going to suggest to you is not a guaranteed silver bullet way to do this. It is a strategy that may or may not work. But that strategy is, as I just said, find something that shows them what their land is capable of producing naturally as, as just purely an ecosystem and not a, a place for logging or a place for crops or a place for livestock. Just purely what does it have to offer from an ecological standpoint? And one of the ways you can do that is when you come across something cool that is natural, you can give that back to that landowner and say, hey, look, I found this shed on your farm. This, you know, deer shed these every year, if you didn't know. I, I love them. I think they're one of the coolest things in the world. You know, and if, if you would like to have it, I'd be happy if you're just going to, you know, if you, if, if you don't really have any interest in it or anything, then yeah, I'll, you know, I'd love to keep it, but I would actually like to give this to you kind of as a gift, you know, just say, thank you for letting me hunt here. And, uh, you know, just kind of show you that this is a, 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 you know, a really important place to these, these critters and they, they like living here on your farm, you know, and once you start showing them that stuff, and I mean, it doesn't just have to be a shed. It could be, it could be a, uh, you know, some some turkey feathers, although you got to make sure that with protected bird species, you're following all the laws there on feather possession and so forth. But it could be uh, could be just giving them some of your venison if you shoot a deer on their farm, or giving them some turkey if you shoot a turkey or, or a pheasant or something. Or uh, could be uh, maybe you find a uh, you know something cool like a turtle shell. Check it out with your local game warden to make sure you're allowed to possess it, and uh, you know clean it up for them. Uh, uh, put like a good, uh, you know, sealant on that shell and present them with a cool turtle shell if they want it or something. You know, whatever it is, show them that their land has value beyond just the bank. It, it's it's a valuable part of the ecosystem, and I think then that they will see the value and and want to preserve that. And uh, hopefully, you know, you'll get to uh, not only enjoy it as a hunter, but as somebody who cares about conservation. Well. That's my tip of the day for you. We'll get on here to our uh, our conversation with Mr. Marcus Gray here on episode number 47 of the First Gen Hunter Podcast. Enjoy.
Well, tonight, folks, we are once again Brandonless. Uh, Brandon's brother, uh, who is also part of you know HFL things that go on at HFL Hunt Fish Life over there in Delaware. But his brother, his youngest brother, is from Missouri, and he is actually visiting in uh, Delaware tonight. And uh, Brandon wanted to make sure he could uh, spend some time with him and and his family. So, uh, our good friend. The the now kind of like a regular voice here on the show, Mr. Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts is uh, filling in tonight. So, Alex, thank you so much for coming in on short notice, man. Oh, I'm glad glad to be here, man. Yeah, it's always a good time. And, uh, you know, uh, listeners are probably like, hey, what's going on with uh, tag application stuff right now? And uh, I'm going to say tonight, we're not telling you. Not because uh, <laughs> we're trying to get you to spend money or anything, but... We'll have another episode here, oh, probably in a, I don't know, what do you think, Alex? Maybe a month would be a good time to start start a talking what's coming up in June and July and and uh, August type time frame. Yeah, I, well, I'd probably say, yeah, three weeks, three weeks to a month. Uh, I mean, everything will kind of start rolling from here. We got um, just... I mean, a few things wrapping up, but then I would say everything pretty much explodes end of March to April. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, I guess it'll be sooner than I thought <laughs> and, uh, it'll be, uh, uh, very, uh, pertinent for that time of year. So that'll, uh, that'll be coming soon. So you'll, you'll get a, you'll get to hear about that. And of course, uh, we'll, we'll tell you in a, in our commercial in this episode, how you can get in touch with Alex and, and talk some hunt planning stuff. If that's, that's what you're uh, looking into. But tonight we are talking squirrel hunting with a uh, wildlife biologist, Mr. Uh, Marcus Gray, but uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit. And, um, you know, I thought it might just be kind of fun to hear what uh, has been going on in the great outdoors with each other. And uh, I'm going to start by saying um, I saw a certain video on social media here recently and uh it just got me thinking it's like is this the second coming of jim shockey (laughs) it's like who is this extreme outdoor guy just shredding up these slopes on a snowboard oh yeah looking like (laughs) looking like uh you know the flying tomato uh sean white 2k6 you know he was he, you were just flaunt burning down that hill like you'd uh, been doing it your whole life man i was that was impressive oh, i'm glad you thought so i uh it, kind of funny story i had i had a real close buddy from nevada come out and he hasn't he hasn't skied or snowboarded since i think like 2012 wow and and his, his wife has never skied or snowboarded so i was like All right, you know i'm if you're visiting, I'm going to take you guys up and, you know, why not hit the slopes a little bit? Now I haven't skied or snowboarded and I think it was seven years. So wow. I wasn't, I wasn't far from them. And I'm thinking, oh man, like, is this going to be like riding a bike or is this going to be like, I got to retrain myself, you know? <laughs> and, uh, we get there, they, they rent their gear and stuff and uh, we go on a couple bunny hills and I was just like, oh, I, like I don't, I feel like I haven't missed a beat, you know? So I started hitting the, I started hitting the slopes pretty good and I was just burning through them. So I was like, Hey man, you got to catch a video of this. Cause I'm going to come flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. The way you like, the way you stopped perfectly, it was like, man, that's, that's uh, I would have broke my neck. But, 
There's actually some pretty hilarious uh, stories out there if you talk to the right person about what happens when I try going skiing. There's, I can be going, I can be going like literally, you know, a half mile an hour and be 100% out of control. You know, I'm like doing the, the pizza pie thing all the way down the, oh no, down the hill and I'm 100% out of control. But, uh, that's not the topic for tonight. The topic is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, um, what I have been doing that I, you know, hopefully I'm a little bit better at. And, uh, today I actually, you know, I'm feeling a little sleepy right now. I gotta be honest. Cause I am, I'm bushed, man. I was out, uh, uh, pounding the ground looking for antlers and, uh, you know, it's, it's still some pretty tough searching around. We've had this, these, gl- this glorious week of weather in the forties uh, and, uh, <laughs> You know, you're a true Midwesterner when it's like, you know, 40 degrees and you're rolling your window down while you're cruising down the road, you know? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Today it uh, hit, uh, I think, 50. And yeah. um, after I got back and picked my kids up from my parents' house, I I uh, took them for ice cream. And uh, while I'm waiting there in line for ice cream, uh, you know, for the drive through there's people sitting outside uh, eating ice cream. And I was like, yep, this is Iowa. <laughs> yep. Uh, listen, we're not we're not far from you here in Michigan doing the same thing. I have my sunroof open and the windows down at like 52 degrees today. <laughs> yep, yep. You just got to soak it up. But, yeah, so we uh, – a good friend of mine, uh, uh, John Rasty, we uh, got out and uh, did, did some shed hunting and um, – uh, we, we actually saw a lot of critters today, even though we didn't see any, uh, see any antlers. We saw a coyote and a raccoon and a couple of big toms, one just giant tom turkey. Nice. Yeah, that was cool. And, uh, let's see, what else did we see? Of course, you know, some Canada geese and, and, uh, a bunch of squirrels and stuff like that. But, you know, probably the most noteworthy thing that we saw, oh, we saw some deer, of course, but uh, well, probably the most noteworthy thing that we did see, though, was a swan. Um, we were driving back, and uh, we're looking right along the Mississippi River, and uh, all of a sudden there's just this lone swan right off the road. And... Uh, it became very apparent that this thing was injured. I mean, it, it could, it could get up and walk about five feet and then it would just kind of like sit down again. It was on high alert. Yeah. It was on high alert, you know, like, Hey, are you guys going to mess with me? me? Right. But it, (laughs) it couldn't fly. And, uh, so ended up, um, uh, calling a County DNR officer and uh he got back to me and and uh, he said yeah you know it, it, since it is a swan we want to uh you know try and that's something we always try to prioritize you know going and at least checking it out see if there's anything that can be done um but i you know i haven't heard any outcome of that but he was he was going to go try and locate the bird and, and get it some help if possible but that was probably the most noteworthy thing that happened today you know we nice we uh you know hopefully we're able to do our good deed in the in the wild there and and uh you know maybe uh save a swan yeah save a swan <laughs> but uh 
And any sheds or no? No sheds. I mean, uh, just a ton of deer sign. I mean, we were in this spot that was that was so loaded with deer sign. It was almost, you know, sometimes when you're looking for sheds, like there's just so much to take in as you're staring at the ground that it's mm-hmm. it's almost a little like overwhelming. You know what I mean? Because like, man, I could look here, but maybe I should look there. No, I need to look over here because there's just so much deer. Sign. It was like that. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I bet in this one 10 acre piece that we searched, we found probably, you know, a uh, hundred plus piles of droppings and beds. I mean, just wow. I mean, probably more like 150 or something like that. You know, it was just, it was just loaded up with, with a sign. So yeah, that was fun to see. And we had to climb up this giant hill. Uh, that's more like a cliff and, uh, it was covered in snow and mud and everything. So we we're like worried we're going to, you know, like slip down and just go all the way down the, <laughs> all the way down the cliff to the bu- busy road <laughs> below. But, uh, no, we had a, we had a good time. And, and, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty well bushed and, you know, one of the things about shed hunting that, um, I think is lost in the whole concept of, or not concept, but the, you know, the, the reward system that we kind of set up for ourselves of, you know, you know, if I do what I'm supposed to, I'm going to find an antler. Well, not always, you know, um, no. one of the, one of, <laughs> one of the guy, one of the guys that, uh, lets me, uh, shed hunt on his farm. He, uh, he finds sheds all the time while he's farming. And, uh, he has the coolest shed I've ever seen. Um, and he found it in the middle of the road. <laughs> of course. So, I mean, of like, like uh, if this road wasn't just a backcountry road, it would have been on, like, the yellow hashes. You know, that's where this thing would have been. But, uh, uh, yeah, middle of the road. So, that happens. But one of, one of the things that I think is, is uh, not appreciated is when you predict that deer are going to be somewhere, and then you go start poking around looking for sheds, and you you stumble across all the sign, like, wow, I was right. That is where the deer are hanging out, you know? And so right. one, one of the cool things for that was this year, Iowa and, and Illinois actually is where we were looking, was in Illinois. Um, it just got dumped on with snow and ice, and it started out with, you know, a, a couple of ice storms. So the very base level has been ice since like the first of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, just think about what that does then to, uh, for the deer on food oh, sources. For sure. And, um, on top of that ice, we probably had a good foot and a half, maybe a little more of snow. And so, uh, you know, what would normally be the food sources that you're going to want to prioritize looking would is going to be corn and soybeans, but, this with them being totally uh coated in that ice and snow you know a deer can't just go out there and put in all the work to dig to the bottom of all that ice and then automatically expect to get a you know get a meal at the bottom of that because what if there's no what if there's no corn left in the ground on the ground right in that spot you know what i mean then obviously it's not gonna that's not gonna be a good spot to be uh to be looking and so what i did was i um heard a, a joe shed uh on our our most recent shed hunting episode episode 42 he mentioned that uh up in his neck of the woods which is you know way up 
uh, in Minnesota, uh, alfalfa fields can be a good uh, place to find sheds because, um, you know, alfalfa generally stays green uh, a lot longer than yeah, any other, other plants. And, you know, what? if you got a whole alfalfa field, that deer knows that even if there's snow and ice, as long as he digs to the bottom, he's going to find food. You know what I mean? Right. There's there's going to be. And so sure enough, we checked this big alfalfa field. We didn't find any sheds, but man, was there deer sign everywhere. So mm. that was kind of cool, you know, to just be like, confirm what Joe said and, and you know, putting together what's going on in our area and kind of cracking the cracking the code there a little bit, you know, so that, that, that did feel good, even though it didn't turn into any sheds. And so, uh, yeah, it was kind of a, kind of a good day out in the woods. How about you? Are you going to be doing any shed hunting there in uh, Michigan anytime soon? I was about to say, I mean, you know, your, your odds of finding a shed, even on your worst day is, is, uh, a hundred times greater than mine. I don't, I don't think sheds exist in Michigan because, uh, in, in between every male deer, uh, getting shot, even if it had the smallest button buck, <laughs> come on, Michigan. I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think they exist actually. So. Oh man. Oh. I, I, I can honestly tell you I've never found a shed in Michigan. All my sheds are from like Virginia or like out west or uh, Illinois. Uh, I, I've never found a shed in Michigan. And I genuinely even I look like if I'm squirrel hunting. Um, sure. Today we were out. We were scouting for deer just off the road. I had my spotter and I was taking videos and pictures. I found some, found some pheasants, saw some turkeys, and yeah. Yeah, the the shed chances uh, for me are just they are they are uh, probably less than winning the lottery. Man, that's <laughs> that's that would be discouraging, and that's that's one of the best times of the year for me. But yeah, you gotta have gotta have those uh, bucks still standing, I guess, if they're gonna be able to drop their antlers <laughs> in the in the winter. So I I did I did see two. I I saw a couple big groups of deer actually and you can always tell which deer are bucks and uh there were there were some pretty two big bodied bucks in that group and i was thinking like all right where are they bedded because i would love to go running around in there and see exactly if i could find any kind of shed because it would be a miracle um but again going jumping around and going through you know the farms and stuff like that's a lot of work (laughs) oh yeah you haven't given permission and everything else too oh yeah that's uh, it takes time, but no, that'd be cool if you could uh, you could find some. That'd be that'd be a good story, but <laughs> yeah, well, you you would get a text message with like exclamation marks. For yeah, sure. yeah, you know, I got <laughs> I got some from uh, 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 some guys that I just recorded with last week, um, from uh, Rhode Island Whitetails, and uh, they uh, found two just hammer sheds today. And so uh, nice. I th- I think the words out that I'm kind of obsessed with shed hunting. So I I get a few shed pictures every now and then from people, and I man, I love it. I love it when people share stuff like that. It's of course you know it makes me think, man, I wish I could go over to Rhode Island and find some sheds. But uh, right, <laughs> no, I think Iowa's got some good ones. though. Yeah, we do. We do. We have some. <laughs> we have some really nice sheds out here, and we're a shed hunting state. You know, you can hunt public ground, and and mm. uh, you can keep any any antler you find that's not attached to a deer skull. And even then, if you do find a deadhead, it's a pretty easy process for, for getting a, uh, 
salvage tag for that so i shouldn't complain too much but you know what we got to stop talking shed hunting because i talk shed hunting probably too much these people <laughs> that are listening in are probably like dude find something yeah, else enough. to talk about yeah <laughs> move on man and uh to that i say you know i can quit anytime i don't have a problem I can... <laughs> right right <laughs> Right. Isn't that isn't that like the classic uh, addiction phrase? Right I was there? about to say you, you you have to admit that you have an addiction before anything. <laughs> oh man! So clearly, I just wish I was good at it. You know, I just oh, wish I could hilarious. find some more sheds. But no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, complain about about that either because uh, I started out the year with a bang when my buddy uh, Luke Fritch and I we found uh, we found that nice match set clear back in early January. So. Just gotta gotta bide my time, get to those good spots, and and it'll start clicking. But uh, we need to we need to start transitioning here to the topic tonight. Tonight's gonna be a little bit of a a little bit in a couple different directions. We're gonna talk. Um, we're, well, first of all, we're gonna tap into Marcus's expertise and uh, uh, his his um, understanding and diverse experiences as a wildlife biologist. And uh, then we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the importance of uh, us hunters educating ourselves on on conservation issues and and ecology, uh, um, you know, kind of some foundational ecology information and and uh, what's best practice for how we manage our land and and uh, wildlife. And so we're going to do a little bit of that and then we're just going to hit it hard on squirrel hunting. And uh, that's something that both Alex and I and uh, Brandon as well, uh, we all enjoy it. And uh, I think it's something that if you're a new hunter and you want to have something where you can have a, you know, pretty high um, success rates, definitely give it a try. And so uh, that's what tonight's all about. And so without any further ado, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll um, run our commercial and then we'll get right into our interview with Mr. Marcus Gray. Have you ever hunted out west or maybe thought about going on your first western hunt? Either way, you need to complete applications, navigate every state's processes, and actually end up getting a tag to go and complete your hunt. East to West Hunts with Alex Gruen is your one-stop shop to get the information you need to get the tags you desire to hunt the species of your choice where you want to hunt them. Alex scaffolds his services by offering simple deadline reminders and consultations for DIY hunters all the way up to the deeply involved premium plans that complete all applications and hunt plans for you. He will even send you waypoints on where to camp, hunt, and more if you have his hunt planning services. Memberships for the DIY Hunter are as low as $8 a month if you are just getting started. Or if you are interested in getting more information, go over to www.alexgruen.com and check out the offerings. Or you can give Alex a shout via phone at 720-248-7181. And when you get there, be sure you use the code FIRSTGEN10 
on the website or reference this podcast when you give them a ring on the phone. If you do, you will receive a 10% discount on any service of your choice. Remember, that's www.alexgruin.com and mention the promo code FIRSTGEN10, all one word, F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, and receive 10% off any of Alex's services. Welcome back to another weekly opportunity to grow as a hunter here on the First Gen Hunter podcast. Alex, am I giving us too much credit there when I say something like that? What do you think? I don't think so. I think I think that's good. Okay, you think people will buy it? I mean, if they're following along at this point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good deal, good deal. Well, if we don't have any authority, the guy that we brought on tonight certainly does. Tonight we are joined by a wildlife biologist and an enthusiast of something that I would consider rather ancient here in uh, the world of hunting in North America. And, uh, and, and even more so than just an enthusiast, I would even use the word authority. And there's, you know, you could say that for different people on, on, uh, all sorts of different types of hunting, but I'm going to say there's not a lot of authorities out there on squirrel hunting, but tonight's guy absolutely is. And it's, it's, if you follow along with him enough, you can tell it's something that he is, he is more than just passionate about. It's, it's a huge part of his life. And the guy that we're talking about is Mr. Marcus Gray. Marcus, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, giving up some of your evening for us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Kent. Thanks, Alex, for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, looking forward. You know, the, as, as this season went along for me, it was kind of interesting for how squirrel hunting uh, fit into the picture. Um, you know, it, squirrel hunting is always one of the first seasons to open up here in Iowa. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, this year, it uh, in, in the past several years, it was the first season to open up. But this year, it opened up like a day later than um, dove season. So doves actually kicked off the fall hunting season here in Iowa. But uh, I made sure as soon as squirrel hunting was around, because I was just so chomping at the bit uh, to get out and... Uh, Don the blaze orange, I guess you could say that I went out and uh, did some early season squirrel hunting. And then as I'm sure, uh, most hardcore squirrel hunters would probably, uh, uh, get a little annoyed by or frustrated by, I quickly was distracted by, uh, you know, the, uh, other bucks running through the woods. Isn't that, isn't that the right terminology for a male squirrel? Isn't it a buck? Like oh, actually, yeah, we call them boars and sows. Yeah, just like hogs. Oh, okay. Oh. Man, I had that wrong. Wow. But is, is it a rabbit? Is it a male rabbit that we call a buck? Is that? Yes. Maybe it's just yeah. a male jackalope. I haven't seen any of those lately. Though. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but the other time that I end up go going squirrel hunting is uh, when uh, – deer season ends and I'm sitting here and I'm kind of, you know, twiddling my thumbs a little bit and I'm looking out the window and I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not really ready to be done hunting. And then I'm like, oh yeah, 
small game is still available. <laughs> and uh, so I, I ended up getting out and uh, doing a little squirrel hunting at the end of the season this year. And man, you want to talk about something that's underrated. <laughs> that is a ton of fun. And I actually got my son out and, um, you know, this is something I need to, I need to get your opinion on tonight in, in our conversation. But, uh, I took my son out and I think we were out at kind of the wrong time of day based on what I was reading online and stuff when, when the right time of the day is for squirrel activity. And so we weren't seeing anything. And because it was winter time and I had my, three-year-old son with me uh he started getting cold right when the right when we started to find find the squirrels and i had the most the 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 most perfect layup shot for a uh squirrel but i thought it would be fun to bring my 17 hmr and Mm -hmm. uh the squirrel was up in the tree and i just with with the, the the range on those guns I just did not feel comfortable shooting a shooting that rifle up into the air, not knowing where that round would carry. And it's like he, it's like that that squirrel just knew that I couldn't shoot him. He just like stood there and just like laughed at me, you know. But uh, <laughs> no, I and then uh, uh, thankfully I did was able to to finish out the squirrel season by bagging one with my my uh, buddy uh, Luke Fritch, and and uh, we had a great time with that. But yeah, I can see how people really get into squirrel hunting and i think the reason they don't is because we've kind of forgotten about it Mm -hmm. and so so, uh i definitely want to i definitely want to address that tonight but uh before we get into all that as i introduced you at the beginning of the show your primary job if i'm not mistaken is as a wildlife biologist is that correct that's right yes sir awesome and uh just from following you on social media, um, I've, I've noticed you do a lot of work with, with pollinators. Can you kind of fill us in on, on, uh, what you're doing with that and, and kind of the importance of that project? Sure. Yeah. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, I've, I've worked on everything from large mammals down, um, even working on policy with farms and, and water quality and things like that. But, since 2016, I've really focused my attention on the decline in pollinators, in particular butterflies, um, just because since the 1980s, butterflies have declined by half mm. uh, across across the board. And so people may not realize that, but what's the mechanism there? And, and really, when you drill down, it's not necessarily the taxa of interest, you know, the species of interest that uh, you might enjoy but it's it's the habitat that they need it's a vegetative condition on the ground that we're lacking so the same reason why monarch butterflies are declining are the same reasons why bob white quail are declining the same reasons why rough grouse are declining neotropical migratory songbirds that nest what we thought were forest obligate birds that feed their young uh caterpillars from openings uh you know they're all seeing the same thing um you know we're seeing 60 to 80 percent declines in these birds um, and then you look at things like people want to do elk reintroduction or work with bison and prairie restoration and all these, you know, working on remnants of these grassland habitats in the southeast, longleaf pine restoration, National Wild Turkey Federation work about every time somebody talks about brood habitat for wild turkeys, they're talking about butterfly habitat. Every time Ducks Unlimited or Delta Waterfowl talks about upland 
waterfowl nesting habitat in the prairie. Uh, they're talking about butterfly habitat. Hmm. So I, I saw an opportunity here to say, okay, well, one, I, I want to be a lifelong student and there's always something to learn. And this is really an underrepresented segment of wildlife science. Um, and so it's easier to, more exciting you know, to solve new problems and, and take models from other sectors and apply it to um, pollinators. But I, I think that we can really tie a thread between all these different interests that people have, but because butterflies react so quickly to changes in the environment, we can pick up nuances that we wouldn't notice in time for other species like birds, you know, um, or, or mammals. So I think that, um, that that's really a lot of why I got into it um, was my interest in gardening coming from a farming family. And, um, you know, I used to wrestle deer, put collars on. I've, I've worked on feral, <laughs> feral hog dis- disease surveillance. And you know what? I don't have to run from a butterfly very often. So <laughs> you know, my, my back doesn't hurt. My, my back doesn't hurt nearly like it, like it did. And then, and, you know, my squirrel hunting is along those lines. I mean, I, I've hunted deer and, and like I said, hogs and upland birds and things like that. But, um, I grew up hunting squirrels. Uh, we always did it. Um, and you know, when you shoot a big animal, it's like now the work starts. Yeah. yeah. You shoot a squirrel, yeah. you put it in your vest or put it on a, a stringer, you know, run a run a piece of buck brush through its back foot, you know, and you can, you can keep going. Um, and I've got an interest in, in hunting dogs and I always like terrier type dogs. Um, and so I had this opportunity to get our family back into squirrel dogs, um, you know, almost 20 years ago now, 16 years ago. And, um, these dogs are small, you know, well, medium 30, 30 pound dogs, short hair, sure. very, very energetic and things like that. And so I had this opportunity to continue with squirrel hunting, but then also incorporate my enjoyment of hunting dogs. Um, so that's you know, pollinators and all these things. It's very, a lot of things are related, but, um, you know, I just see that there's an opportunity here to use butterflies essentially as a canary in the coal mine for what's going on on the landscape, uh, in a, in a coordinated and, um, rapid way. Mm, so. I like how you said that the canary in the, in the mine, that's, uh, that's a that's a great point, and um, you know I think that's that's one thing where uh, ecology is a lot of fun to learn about. You know, uh, as a as a biology teacher, it's always my favorite uh, subject to to cover with students, and it's fun to to it's fun to see them light up when you can start connecting the dots like you do in an ecology class. Uh, basically, yeah. basically what you just did there when you talked about how all these other, there's all these trickle down effects to, uh, things that unfortunately, uh, people just care about more, but you know mm-hmm. what, if that's how we can reach people by talking about, Hey, this is how this affects what you really care about, then, uh, so be it, I guess, you know, but, but exactly. cer- certainly, uh, uh, we do appreciate your your hard work and trying to preserve some of these things that, that we really do need on the landscape. And, uh, you know, something that, that I wanted to bring up tonight, uh, um, in following you, I, I noticed this post you made, oh, maybe a few months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was a, an excerpt from, uh, a San County Almanac from mm-hmm. Aldo Leopold. And I, I've been working through that, that book, which is an interesting compilation and i didn't realize this until um i don't know maybe this last spring i think was about the last time i had really been working on getting through it and uh i believe it's a 
it's a compilation that was kind of sort of put together by his kids. They, mm-hmm. they found some of his unpublished memoirs or something like that, or just mm-hmm. kind of ramblings really. And, yeah. uh, and put them together in this, in this, uh, you know, single document, this book and, uh, it, just a, you know, you want to talk about reading something that'll <laughs> start opening your eyes on the finer details, uh, like pollinators, uh, that that's yeah. definitely a, a great resource for people to uh, to start at. But you know, kind of, we're going to get a little luxury here, I guess, on uh, <laughs> towards the uh, the you know general populace of of hunters because that's our audience here. And and um, you know, the fact that I'm a teacher is one of my my jobs is to to try to get information out to people that that can help them and and help our communities and and uh in this case help our ecosystems that we uh that we like to participate in as as outdoorsmen and women and and hunters and and anglers and uh you know so i thought i would share this quote that marcus originally shared and uh just kind of uh uh go back to marcus here to to get some some um follow-up on it but the quote is, is as follows. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to laymen. An ecologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business or... He must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Ouch. Yeah, that's rather scathing there. You know, that was, uh, I think Aldo must have written that in his uh, grumpy old age or something. But <laughs> man, he is, he is spot on i would say well yeah i mean you, you think about it in in our profession wildlife science ecology forestry natural resources you know whatever whatever box you want to put it in and in, in the you know the segment of the of the profession um doesn't matter as much but you know it's we spend a lot of time addressing degraded systems that no one seems to really care about um you know as long as everybody has their cup of coffee and they've got their smartphone and they go through lives wondering, you know, knowing what the, the, um, celebrities are doing that, that <laughs> they've got a full, they've got a full life. But, um, you know, I, I, I maintain that, you know, we're not, and this is in my quote, it's, it's paraphrased, but, um, you know, we're not apart from nature. We're a part of it. Hmm. And the sooner we realize that, I think we're going to be a lot better off. And, and Aldo wrote about that, that, you know, we're, uh, you know, part of this community, um, abiotic and biotic. So the, the, mm-hmm. the non-living and the, and the living. And he wrote about, uh, also in San County Almanac talking about how our natural heritage is resigned to roadsides and cemeteries. And yeah. so really, I think that makes a lot of sense for people. Like if you're involved with pheasant hunting or sharp-tailed grouse hunting and you're out running around in the Dakotas. Um, yeah, I think you see that. I think you see the, that's where the wildflowers are. That's where the native grasses are. And that's what holds the birds. Um, and so, you know, we go through life, the general public sees a green forest and they go, that's great. And I walk up to it and I see invasive species and poor management, <laughs> um, the need for fire, 
you know, and all these other, these, you know, past land uses. It's, I mean, we even had classes on reading the landscape to look mm-hmm. at the, the historical use of that property as well to inform what you're doing because, you know, with forestry or even prairie restoration, um, everything is a 50 year, it's like chess with a 50 year move between pieces. You know, it's, it's like everything you do is going to impact future generations. Um, and you may never see it. So I think out of, out, it was probably feeling that, um, you know, a strong way that, you know, our profession and natural resources management, even game management, um, which is another book that he wrote, it's called game management, um, is, is underappreciated by an increasing number of people that are disconnected from nature. And they don't realize the importance of the services that those natural systems provide. Uh, we take it for granted that we have clean air and clean water, spaces to recreate, and bountiful game that we're allowed to hunt. I know a lot of our ancestors came over from Europe where you couldn't hunt yeah. the landowner's game. Um, and so now we've got a system where it's pretty uh, equal. It's egalitarian. And people can hunt, but they choose not to do it. And then they go a step further and try to stop other people from doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you go, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Look, look at what they came from in Europe. It was a mess. <laughs> you know, you should be glad that you even, you know, you can go hiking, you can go paddling on that stream because in other places, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. And, uh, uh, you know, it's worth it, especially as hunters, you know, for us to, to do all we can to try and educate ourselves in this way. You know, there's none of us are ever going to know everything we need to know. That's, that's for certain, but right man, why not try, you know, why not try to learn your landscape better? Uh, we had a, another wildlife biologist on who, um, has gone kind of a different route with his career and has, uh, b- become a, uh, uh, a recreational property, uh, real estate agent, but then he mm-hmm. also, he also runs a land management business on the side. And so, you know, yeah. that's where he uses his training to, to help folks out and and uh he kind of talked about that after we got done uh recording uh you know it's easy for us to only focus on how do we how do we make this the best for whitetails you know right or right you know people people want to just jump to the the quick conclusion that oh i'm just going to put a a food plot down you know and not that not that that's necessarily wrong or anything like that but it's probably not going to be the thing to maximize your property by any means. And it could, yeah. in some cases, depending on what you're planning and where you're planning, it, it could be wrong. And it could, it could have some uh, mismanagement uh, complications that come out of that down, down, you know, down the road. But uh, yeah. it, I think, you know, if we, if we take the time to uh, try to educate ourselves and there's also, I mean, there's so many ways we can do that, right? You know, we can, we can, uh, listen to, to podcasts like you're doing right now. We can, uh, pick up a copy of a San County Almanac and try to develop that deeper sense of care and, and that really an eye for the smaller details that matter. And, um, and, uh, you know, maybe look at what we're doing, maybe, maybe look at what others around us are doing and, and try to make it better, you know? And, and, uh, I think, I think, you know, just like your work with the pollinators, if we get enough people on board to do this stuff, we'll start to see some really positive, um, some really positive ground being gained down, you know, eventually, maybe even within our own lifetimes, uh, but hopefully certainly within the lifetimes of those coming behind us, right. You know, our kids and, and Mm -hmm. nieces and nephews and and all that. So yeah, definitely, definitely worth it. 
Yeah, I mean the way the way that I see it is it's similar to the stages of a sportsman you know, or sports person, you know, these days that, you know, you start out wanting that success and wanting to limit out. And then as you progress, you, you know, go through the stages of development mm. and you become, you know, the a conservationist and wanting to teach others and you, you get, you move, you move on. And I, and I think habitat management or wildlife management as a profession has gone through that. And I think that the hunting community is coming along maybe a little later in some instances, like you said, want to put a food pot out. But, you know, in wildlife, we start out with, we're all about nest boxes, you know, nesting yeah. platforms, uh, predator control, which, you know, it has its place in, in, um, in, you know, as a, a tool in the tool belt, but we've shifted more to habitat management. You know, if you read, um, you know, Fred Guthrie's on Bob White's, for example, he talks about, you know, if you've got good escape cover, you don't really need predator management, you know, right. they're protected from what they're protected from weather. You know, and they do well, but if you don't have that escape cover and that thermal cover in winter, you know, your population is just tank. And so, mm-hmm. like, the profession has gone from this nest boxes to more holistic habitat management. And so, like, yeah, if you want to put a food plot, you know, I'll argue that that nature's food plot is to open up the timber. You know, mm-hmm. make it yeah. make a make a clearing where you get lush regenerative growth of the hardwoods um, in a stand, and that is also butterfly habitat because all those all those hardwoods, especially oaks and hickories um sassafras things like that they support uh, a wide variety of, of butterfly caterpillars so it's it's all like i said it's all connected uh, you want antler growth you've got to have browse yeah. you know, deer are browsers um and so do you need those that browse for the deer you need the caterpillars for the birds you need that escape cover you know you need young forest for grouse um rabbits i mean just just it goes on and on we're, we're missing this community of early successional or um grassland dependent animals um, that are that are just basically gone from the landscape. You know, from where you're at in Iowa, you don't have to go very far east. You know, like the Mississippi Valley East, you have like 60 to 80 year old trees covering most of the continent. Yeah. Um, and there's no light getting to the ground. There's no food. There's no forage. There's no you know there's no production underneath this forest um, canopy that's that's covering everything. Right. So yeah, it's 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 just it's taking a step back and looking at things at a at a larger level. Yeah, if you want to put in your food plot, by all means. You know, but it's sort of like people are transitioning to planting mass producing trees or um, native fruit producing trees and things like that, you know, as they as they move move on in their own progression. Yeah. So so do you see uh, pollinators then as like kind of like the foundation to the home? I mean, is that is that? Yeah, I guess your viewpoint, if you don't have that, you know, you really can't have everything else to be as as good as you would want it to be. Yeah. I mean, the insects are the foundation of, of the food chain. Really, I mean, if you don't have those, then you you just lose so much else that you that you might be interested in. And those same plants, the same ones feeding deer, so that's where the connection comes in. But um, you know, I, I I tend to like butterflies, but you know, there's 725 species of butterfly normally that occur regularly above Mexico, um, north of Mexico. There's hmm. 11,000 moths. So um, <laughs> I'm not wow. I'm not really hmm. yeah, but but the biomass by and large is is moth caterpillars that are feeding these birds and it also is the same habitat that butter you know butterflies are an easier cell uh because of their their coloration and people's familiarity with them but um you know yeah it's it's all i see butterflies as this umbrella or linchpin that can help tie these things together um because that'll reach a, a, a wider audience maybe one uh of the others you know especially when you're trying to recruit new people you know maybe you know trying to reach the people that are quote unquote disconnected from nature um, they don't have a familiarity with hunting or a way to get into it. That's difficult. 
but they might be able to do something on their patio with container garden for monarchs, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's, uh, you know, we, we call the monarch, the gateway bug, <laughs> uh, because it gets, it, it gets people into everything else. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You're spot on. I, I, uh, I will say I was a proud, uh, father of uh, three or four of them this year. We we planted yeah. milkweed in the yard, and I got the kids involved, and uh, you know we watched them eat every day, and yeah. you know cocoon and the whole deal. But <clears throat> to your point, it's it, I mean it's an easy, simple way to get involved with it. You feel like you're making some kind of an impact. Uh, for mm-hmm. me, it's important just to get my kids involved with it. But yeah, uh, you know you kind of learn something uh, along the way that you know heck even myself you know you just didn't appreciate it until you start doing the the research or education on it mm-hmm. yep. yeah and, the, and your kids will remember those you know they'll remember those yeah. activities for a long time oh just yeah like, just like their first fish just like their their first deer um you know but and and like we're going to talk about tonight squirrel hunting you know i think that's a great introduction uh, to yeah. the outdoors in general and learning patience and learning how to read sign and being quiet um, you know, learning the behavior of animals that you want to hunt and, and marksmanship, you know, being a good shot is, is really important. Like you, you were mentioning earlier, um, <clears throat> Kent about, uh, you know, taking a shot with your 17 and, you know, what's the risk there of having, yeah. you know, sky basically behind, um, the, the animal that you're shooting at and things like that. And, and these days that that's an increasing concern, especially if you're hunting a new area and you're not familiar, you don't know where houses are. Right. Um, you know, that you definitely do need to be cautious and, and make sure that you're um, taking safe shots. You know, you've got a good backstop, um, but you're also not too low. So it's it can be tricky. Yeah. You know? Yep. For sure. No, that's all. That's all excellent uh, information and and great points. You know, there on on how we need to we need to care about this stuff and and um, yeah. You know, maybe maybe a good thing I should do sometime is. Uh, create kind of almost like a, a book log and I'll definitely uh, tap Mark for that just to, to get his input on, on what he thinks would be some good literature for people to, to check out. But I've definitely uh, read some doozies in my time that, that have helped me, you know, understand how uh, things work so much better, but, but yeah, uh, I mean, a great example is, is the Sand County Almanac. Yeah. I mean, out of Leopold's writing appeals to hunters like us, and to wilderness preservationists, it's the same man. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's all how you read it and how you interpret it. And, you know, everybody wants the same thing, but they're coming at it from different angles. And yes, there's a lot of adversarial relationships. Don't get me wrong. You know, I used to work for some large hunting organizations out of DC. Um, so, I mean, I know what the <laughs> anti-hunters are like, um, yeah. but it's, you know, that's the common ground is like, we, we want open space. We want healthy populations. We want healthy systems. Um, but, it's all your baseline, uh, you know, your historical baseline or what constitutes, um, you know, nature and yeah. what's appropriate. And that's what, you know, you're talking about the quote that you, that you mentioned is, yeah, you just, you either see a, a sea of green when you look at tree, a, a forest, or you see the individual, um, components of it, you know, the different species and, and what might be happening as, as the land is managed or not. Um, and that could be, that's very subjective, you know, that people don't like timber harvest or they don't like wildland fire, whether it's prescriptive or not, you know, um, you just have to educate people. They're like, look, this, we're doing this for these benefits, you know, and, and, um, and make it meet people where they're at and, and, uh, appeal it, apply it to what their concerns are. I mean, it's, it's just like environmental 
practices anyway. I mean, you could tell people till you're blue in the face to turn the lights out when they leave the room because it'll save the world. Um, but if you tell them that they'll save some money on their electric bill, you find out you're sitting around in the dark. Um, because they, they run around, turn all the lights off. You know, so true. Yeah. You know, so if you make it economic, you know, look at look how much money and services and you know, just how much of a sponge or a filter that the natural systems are when they're intact um, for improving our livelihoods and 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 health. Let alone you want to go shoot an elk or whatever. But you know, I think you know those the, that those. Um, activities have value. Also, Aldo said that there's any value, there's value in any experience that reminds you of the connection that people have with the natural world. Um, mm. And so, obviously, that includes hunting, but it also includes bird watching. And you know, but but we you know we are omnivores and we eat meat and we eat vegetables and we have to be able to make a living on this on this continent. Um, so I, I just think that there's a lot of opportunities to um, try to pull together multiple uses as much as we can. You can't manage for everything on the same acre, so we might as well um, create a habitat type that supports a wider range of species than we have currently over a lot of the landscape. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah very well said. Very well said. Well, let's uh, let's transition from uh, talking about conservation of uh, our natural resources and, and uh, wildlife, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, let's talk about uh, another important uh, conservation issue, which is conserving the number of squirrel hunters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're an endangered species. Okay? <laughs> we have habitat awesome. access problems. Yeah, yeah. Can you just kind of give us a maybe a uh, broad view of what what squirrel hunt, how squirrel hunting has maybe changed through your lifetime to where it is now, and uh, also then just kind of inter- intertwine in with that how you got into squirrel hunting. Sure. I mean, I, I think the, the story is familiar to some people and, and increasing number of people that if you go and read the old reports, that, that squirrel hunting was much more popular than it is now. People used to go out the back door and hunt, you know, because they grew up, in, they were living in a rural area. They had a farm mm-hmm. that they lived on or, or, you know, they can get permission very easily from a neighbor and go hunt the draw below the house, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, there used to be millions of hunters and it was like everybody took it for granted because it was so common and it was people didn't think about the numbers except for back when large mammal populations and turkey populations were decimated you know they were gone Mm -hmm. um small game hunting when the wildlife profession actually started was um seen as the clientele um you know there i've got books from the 30s and 40s you know michigan fox squirrel management gray and fox squirrels uh, by a man out in kansas uh you know so it's it's like they were they were conducting these game surveys and looking the early studies in wildlife aside from mallard ducks which are you know like the most studied animal ever um, <laughs> are on are on squirrels yeah you know, they want to know how many young are they having when are they breeding what do, you know how important are are nests you know dens versus nests um, how much hunting pressure can they take um, what kind of timber management would support fox squirrels versus gray squirrels um, so like they were very much into this because that was the game that was available. Um, you know, there were still quail around a lot of the country, but they were starting to decline. Um, and it's, you know, everything is, has changed in that way. And so once the, once the large mammals were reintroduced and and recovered, um, naturally people switched the game was available, you know? So I I compared myself some to like in some circles and especially where I live now on the New York, uh, Pennsylvania border, I'm like the last squirrel hunter. 
Um, I feel like I feel like the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not a real not a real tribe, but you know, I think you get the point. They represent people that maybe we didn't know about. But um, you know, it, it, there's just not very many people. I, I feel like the old snipe hunters. You know, w- when was the last time you went outside to play with your friends growing up? When was that day? When when were you the last one? You know, you just you didn't decide it. It just it just subconsciously yeah. happened. You know, mm-hmm. you started, you went to college or you went to work or whatever. And you just, you know, there was one kid left there by the mud puddle, wondering where everybody was at. And that's me with squirrel hunting. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, we're all y'all. Depressing, man. Uh, yeah. So, so it's like, I drive around here and it's like the same five trucks, you know, and it's, you know, they're the requisite, you know, the one deer hunter, maybe two deer hunters, the turkey hunter, a couple of guys hunting stocks, pheasants and me. And uh, I'm the squirrel hunter and I'm the weirdo, but it's like, <laughs> it's like we had this, you know, United nations of hunting and we all were representatives of our respective countries and, you know, but there's nobody else there. And uh, it's like, what the heck is going on? So the Northeast has been dealing with this. The Southeast is starting to deal with it. Now the hunter decline numbers like crazy. And now the Midwest is following suit. So it's, it's like, no one's, no one's immune to this. It might just happen at different rates, but squirrel hunting has gone for millions of people participating and down to uh in the 2016 or excuse me in the 2011 survey of of wildlife dependent recreation that the u.s fish and wildlife service done does they were down to 1.7 million you know wow. spread across wow. the 50 states but they, they tend to be in the south and midwest um and you go okay maybe there's something to this and then the 2016 survey came out five years later and uh they were down to 1.5 mm. and it's been it's been another five years. So are we down to 1.3? Yeah, we can't afford to be losing 200,000 squirrel hunters every five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the trend that we're on right now. And, you know, that has impact to license sales and everything else because squirrel hunters are also hunting other things. You know, yeah. they're buying licenses, they're, they're buying gas, they're buying ammo, they're buying guns, they're, they're traveling, they're staying in hotels, they're buying meals. You know, so there's, there's an economic impact to that. You know, we're losing hunters, period. And, um, you know, when I was eight years old, when I started squirrel hunting, it was like common. Everybody did it. Um, your grandpa would take you or your uncles and your dad would take you, you know. Um, and sure. we even had women in our family that hunted back then. My aunt could skin squirrels better than anybody else that you might know. And, um, <laughs> and, and did a lot of them. I did a lot of them. Um, but it was like we would go out in the morning. We would squirrel hunt, get three or four squirrels, come back and skin them, and my grandma would fry them up that morning. We'd eat them for breakfast. So yeah. people just people just don't do that. We now today we hunt them and we 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 do shoot them and, and skin them and and we do eat them, but we we tend to freeze them. Like we'll save them up. Yep. Um, but they were they were very much like hand to mouth. It was like you eat them fresh when you got them, um, and that's just how they how they always were. Um, and uh, yeah, so now we're you know trying to get you know I've got my wife into it, I've got my kids into it, and I try to get others into it but um the thing that i've been doing since 2005 has been um squirrel dogs we have these uh a breed of dog called mountain feist and um i've been able to save some of the the folks that probably would have dropped out um from hounds or beagles you know because rabbit populations have tanked or property sizes are too small and you can't have a dog that goes a mile all the time um you know or they're getting older you know and and they're trying to get their grandkids into it or something like that. But like, I think we're definitely helping on the, on the, uh, retention side of hunting too, where people just, they can't drive around the section anymore, be out all night coon hunting. You know, sure, they would rather sure. switch. They'd rather switch to hunt during the day, um, and take kids. So, but all the States report, 
and I, you know, and I keep trying to get a straight answer on this, but all the states report their total license sales. You know, to and we're talking about hunting, hunting recruitment, retention, and, and reactivation, right? And um, R three. Yeah. And yep. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm counted three or five times, depending hmm. on you know, because I buy a license in multiple states every year. Yeah, that's a good. And point. so, like, I don't see anybody else. And so that's that's where we're at is like, in the in, in large parts of the country, and even in the Midwest and Missouri where we hunt, you know, people are aging out of you know anything let alone hunting but just they're moving to town they're going to retirement homes and you know the average age is increasing so um how are we going to fund this conservation at the large level if we don't get new people into it and i don't know you know if anybody listening if you are not familiar with hunting and you open a game regulation book and you look at the big game that will turn you off fast yeah you're like what is going on <laughs> Who, what where can i hunt what can i do what are the limits what can't yeah you know, it's just intimidating um, but squirrels are a lot more forgiving. Um, small game tends to be a lot more forgiving. It's a long season. There's a lot of opportunities. The bag limits keep getting increased. A lot of states did that to say, look, look at the opportunity we're providing. We'll increase the bag limit. But most small game populations and squirrel populations in particular are controlled by season length, not so much bag limit. So, um, because the average hunt is still three squirrels, whether, whether you increase the limit to 10 or, or from six or not the average is still three <laughs> and you've got fewer people out there. So, um, you know, it, it was a good PR move, but really it's the length of season that makes a difference. And, you know, like states like Missouri, we start in May, um, that uh, for the mulberry season, that's, that's huge. You know, get kids right before they get out of school, even, you know, um, get distracted by other things. And then, you know, we just go through this progression throughout the season where, you know, we get into, um, pine cones, like in the Southeast, uh, sort of midsummer and then late summer we're getting hickory nuts and then we get into the traditional mass that people think about you know acorns and hickory you know, hickory nuts are ending but we're getting into acorns and stuff like that and then walnuts tend to come later but that's when things kind of get tricky you know in terms of terms of patterning on a given year sometimes when the other mass runs out the squirrels will switch to walnuts earlier and the, but the okay usual the usual thing is that they store those because uh, there's a lot of tannin in them you know they're they're very bitter rot resistant so the squirrels naturally uh, we'll store those just like red oak acorns. I'll store those and they tend to eat white oak acorns fresh. Um, and, uh, they'll dig those up later, you know, in the late, late season when there's nothing else available. So it's like, you, you can pattern them. You can look at, you know, the breeding season, which yes, we call the rut oddly enough, but, um, you know, you, you can definitely get a sense of what's going on and when, and, you know, the good times to go, um, we can talk about too, if, if you want to, but it tends to be dawn and dusk, you know, early, early morning and, late evening um but like when i'm training dogs if it's during deer season and we're allowed to hunt squirrels during deer season firearms deer season which some states restrict it and some don't um we'll hunt the middle of the day everybody will go hunt deer they'll go get breakfast at a, you know go, mm-hmm. go get their biscuit and that's when we go that's when we go yeah and then, that's a good uh, idea and then you know we're done by like two three in the afternoon when people want to come back out so and it's and it's really good for um because you know, the squirrels have already been out in the morning late to track and it's good for getting dogs to not just be sight chasers, but to actually start figuring out tracks and stuff like that. So it's good for like a, you know, started dog that might know a little something knows what a squirrel is, but needs to figure out their nose. Um, so it's sort of like forcing them to not get the easy ones. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's just, there's a lot to it and, and it's a lot more complex than, than people might think. I mean, every article, every year, the squirrel season starts coming around and people go, this is a great way to train for, you know, improve your shooting for deer hunting. I mean, yes, it is, but it has value in its own right. And yeah. a lot of the people that write those articles aren't squirrel hunters. 
it, you know, if, if, if they ever were, they, they're not back into it, but there's an increasing number of people that are um, rediscovering it just because of the nostalgia of it. And then trying to get the next generation. like, we've got to get people into hunting in a less competitive, um, you know, way where it's easier to your attention's easier to hold. You don't have to sit there and be quiet. You can move, you can talk and squirrel dogs has been that, you know, it's, it's, you know, within reason. I mean, you don't want people screaming and yelling through the timber, but it happens. Um, but kids can throw sticks and talk and jump in leaves and whatever. Um, <laughs> dogs, dogs get out from you and they, they tree the squirrel just like a coonhound trees a coon. Um, and, uh, it's just a lot more of a friendly atmosphere, I guess, you know, where, where you can actually talk and carry on. Whereas where we grew up hunting, uh, more still on stand hunting without dogs, you better, you can't talk at all. And you step on a stick. I can tell you some of the scariest looks most stern looks i ever got in my life from other you know older hunters is if you step on a stick. <laughs> yeah. you alert the squirrels oh yeah they leave the country yeah yeah so i i i got i got a couple i mean listening to you uh you obviously know what you're talking about and you're you're super detailed uh sorry, sorry. <laughs> no it, it, it's awesome but you got my like wheel spinning right because i mean i squirrel hunt and i use it for a multiple of reasons, but as you kind of go back into like the whole licensing and hunting aspect and you, you're talking about like, you know, somebody looking at big game and getting overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, at least from my perspective and from people that I talk to, uh, like people have no clue that you can eat a squirrel or people right. have no clue that they could even hunt a squirrel. They think yeah. deer when they think of hunting. Right. So it's like, yes, what's, what's your perspective on like the avenue to get more people to do it because if i think about it in my perspective it's getting people to taste it right or try mm-hmm. it that would mm-hmm. never go out yes. um yeah you know because 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 people people equate food with uh, a subway sandwich that has fake chicken in it but they can't <laughs> wrap their mind around eating a, a a you know a chicken wing from a from a squirrel leg you know what i mean like yes. yeah it's that, that's mind-blowing to me but that's just kind of the world we live in. So, like, what's your thought there on on the right avenue, or or what have you experienced there that that's kind of the right way forward? Yeah, we we've been involved in some activities to try to get that you know the field to fork type uh, game banquets, you know, fundraisers and things like that, where we've donated squirrel meat uh, um, and made dishes. You know, basically idea. basically anything that you can, any recipe that calls for chicken or pork or rabbit pheasant you know you can you can substitute squirrel um you can you can pick it off the bone you know debone it and that that sort of thing or like you said you know traditionally fried and people people deal with that all the time i hear that a lot there's no meat on a squirrel but they're over there eating chicken wings you know Mm. and i'm like what are you talking about (laughs) and i was like have you seen a fox squirrel they're three pounds oh Um, delicious you know so i mean it's it's (laughs) it's it's all what you're used to like you said and you know it's yeah it's getting people to think about um how they can how they can use it and and yeah, just tasting it. It's just like, it's like shooting any, you know, firearms and you know, people start out, they can start out almost anti-hunting and then you take them, you know, anti-guns and you take them to the range and start shooting and then they're looking for where they can buy their own. So it's, yeah, it's, it's introducing people to the meat and things that can, they can be doing with it. And there are farm to fork or field to fork type events um, that happen all the time. And they're increasingly, you see articles, um, Georgia Pellegrini is a chef that has used squirrels on a high end scale um you know to to introduce um people to the the value of squirrel meat and there are others i mean um hank shaw wrote a cookbook um that 
includes a lot of small game recipes. Um, but yeah, it's I've had everything from pizzas and calzones to pasta. Um, for um, an event that we had, a fundraiser, we actually made um, basically squirrel cakes. They were kind of like um, crab cakes, but it's made with squirrel meat. Mm. Um, and the patties, they were so good. Um, you know, for uh, oddly enough, for a family reunion, we we did um, garlic parmesan uh, squirrel legs. Um, but yeah, you can, you can make some pretty high end dishes with it. Um, you know, because it's, it's a flavorful meat, you know, it won't say the cliche that tastes like chicken. You know, it is different. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's got more to it than a plain chicken might have. And, you know, and just because of their diet, you know, and their, their activity level, um, and just like any other game and, and how you prepare it and process it is, is a handle the meat is, is part of it. Um, sure. You know, like an older squirrel, you you can tell in the timber that a squirrel is an older individual or not by their behavior. Um, you know, a squirrel that barks at you is probably going to be an old female, an old sow. So, you know, those uh, might it'd be like two generations before me. You know, it's the, the old old women, you know, my, my granny, she'd be like, old ones eat, eat too, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and she just put them in a crock pot, you know. She put them in a, in a crock pot of their pressure cooker for a while and, and get that, that meat tender, you know. She wasn't going to waste it. So, I mean, I think that there's there's definitely um, a lot for people to be introduced to. And, uh, yeah, we do try to do that. Um, you know, we wrote a book in, in 2018 uh, about our dogs called The Mountain Feist. And we do cover some uh, cooking and recipes in that. But it's it's a uh, it's a high-level overview, just like we're talking about. Sure. But, the, but yeah, you can go online. There's there's a myriad of, of squirrel recipes. I mean, the traditional Brunswick stew recipe from Southside Virginia, where I grew up, uh, the original recipe call for squirrel. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that is, that is really, that's a really important part of it. And anytime you hear here in, uh, you know, recent news, I guess, for lack of a better term, about people getting into hunting, um, a big part of it is the food, you know. They they mm -hmm. see that as, you know, a, a reasonable, a reasonable I don't know what the right term is, maybe motive for, for yeah. choosing to get into hunting, especially if uh, they come from no hunting background at all, you know, then it's, mm -hmm. it's worth that extra effort to them. And I think it also helps people, you know, Alex, I think you were kind of getting at this a little bit when we look at how much processed food that we're okay with consuming or um, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, even, even just, you know, we've mentioned the anti hunters a little bit too tonight, you know, <laughs> I want to know how many people who are so against hunting uh, still eat meat and why right. they're, they're more okay with, with, uh, you know, their sandwich facing a, a captive bolt gun instead of, uh, you know, while they're in a, you know, coming out of a confinement shed their whole life as, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, some, some critter swinging around the, <laughs> the canopy in a, in a right. big forest and one second they're alive, the next second they aren't. <laughs> and they yeah. had, they mm -hmm. never knew it was what hit them, you know, and, and not that I'm against, uh, you know, agriculture providing uh, meat at all, but I, I just think that, that, you know, hunting can help answer some of those questions for people. That well, so. yeah, and and we also have to one one of the responsibilities of managing these populations is what do we do with overabundant wildlife, and we're mm. grappling with this because the North American model of, of wildlife conservation has been like, well, we can't we can't sell it, 
you know, we don't want to go back to the market hunting. Yeah. Um, but we've got a lot of deer, we've got a lot of turkey, you know, we've got a lot of feral hogs, Lord knows. So, oh, man, um, yeah. you know, how can we get these into the, into the systems, uh, the, the chains you know, to get them to people that need them. Um, and when you're having to pay for processing and things like that, it makes it pretty tough. Yeah. Um, you know, this yeah. year, this year, the hog prices dropped and people were taking their own pigs to processors for their own use because they couldn't sell, they couldn't make enough money, um, selling them at the sale barn. So that bogged down the deer processors or the deer processors stopped taking yeah. deer, you yeah. know, so it's, it's every year you never know what you're going to, what you're going to run into. Um, but I think that, that, um, for sure. I mean, there, there's no better local food than a free range, wild, unadulterated piece of game meat, right. um, whatever, whatever animal it is. I mean, yeah, you get into maybe some fisheries problems with environmental contaminants like mercury and things like that, but that's because we have a problem. Yeah. You know, we need to manage these systems better. We need a better approach to how we manage, you know, how we deal with some of these, uh, industries. But, um, yeah, we need, you know, light and power and stuff. But you tell me that, um, you know, our ancestors wouldn't have used something to make their life easier. Of course they would. That's how, how we got to where we're at. But I think we right. need to take a step back and say, well, all right, well, some of these old ways we should probably keep around one, you know, look at the pandemic, you know, um, it's just people want to get into gardening. They want, they remember squirrel hunting when stuff falls apart. Um, you know, just like they, they get, they got back into gardening. There was a run on all the garden centers, you know, um, even right now you can't buy seeds for your garden from some suppliers. So it's, it's, we need somebody to be able to keep this information around to be able to share it with other people. And not that I'm this squirrel hunting Messiah or whatever, because I'm, I, I used to be common, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but like, how do we get more people into this? And, and it's just like what you're saying. It's, it's, it's all about the meat. There's the dog training aspects and the, and the, camaraderie of getting together with other hunters sure but there are very few trophy class squirrels you know it's yeah. it's it's <laughs> you know you can go for for color you know different places but most most of the time it's it's for the table you know uh, the vast majority of the time and um i think that should that should have an appeal to to a lot of folks and because it's accessible there are places you can go where you live um and it's something you can get into with a relatively low amount of pressure um, you know, for accessing sites and, and trying things out on your own. And there's a lot of opportunities. If you miss a squirrel, it's not like you miss the bighorn sheep on the side of a mountain. Right, yeah. Um, there will, there will be another squirrel if you just right. shush and sit still. <laughs> right, right. No, that's a, that's a great point. Well, we've kind of talked about it a few times and, and, uh, talked around it, but let's hear, you know, just, just, uh, you know, for, for a minute or two here, can you explain the dog breed that you're working so hard with and, and, um, you know, just the, how that whole approach works with hunting squirrels with dogs? White Duck Outdoors manufactures and provides the highest quality premium canvas gear for hunting groups and outfitters. With a complete range of canvas wall tents, cabin tents, and bell tents, White Duck offers shelters that you can spend days or even weeks in when you're out on a big hunt. The tents are built from their proprietary Dyna Duck fabric. It's 100% Army Duck 
cotton canvas treated with a breathable, PFC-free, firewater repellent, mold, and UV-resistant finish. All tents come equipped with all add-ons at no extra cost. This includes a complete pole set, stove jack, storm door, floor, bug mesh, and windows. Beyond their top-of-the-line canvas tents, White Duck's line of gear consists of heavy-duty canvas tarps designed to protect any gear and equipment, ripstop beds for your gun dogs after a long day of hunting, and military-grade duffel bags to brave the outdoors. All products from White Duck come with free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime warranty. Visit www.whiteduckoutdoors.com and use the promo code, all one word, all caps, FIRSTGEN for 10% off your first purchase. That's www.whiteduckoutdoors.com and enter the promo code FIRSTGEN for 10% off your first purchase. Yeah, it's there are elements of it that might be familiar to people if they if they come from the beagle world with rabbits or foxhounds or or, or um, bird dogs even. You know, but if you're completely new to it, basically what we do is we have a dog that's specifically bred and trained to locate and bark treed, you know, to identify the location of a squirrel, and we go to a likely patch of woods. You know, we call it timber, but Seen it here or there, a patch of forest, and um, you cast the dog out. You, you turn them loose, and they have it bred into them that they will go out, look for the squirrel, if, and use their eyes and their ears and their nose to try to locate you know, the quarry. And if they don't, they will circle back around and check in with you. <laughs> so it's huh. very convenient. It's very convenient that you don't have to go chasing your dog most of the yeah. time. <laughs> um, you know, like I, you know, pet people, they're like, I can't let my dog off leash, it'll run away. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you run through that phase with a puppy as well. You know, they want to, they get their energy up and they didn't run enough and they, you know, they'll run off and not listen to you. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but more often than not, you want run through the, through the woods yelling for a puppy and the, the darn thing will meet you back at the truck and make you look like an idiot. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's like they know where they're supposed to be and you set the direction. You let, you cast the dog out, you walk through the timber and you look for activity. But really, once the dog is trained, I don't shoot a squirrel that the dog didn't treat. So I'm not even looking anymore most of the time, hmm. yeah, unless we got the kids along and I'm trying to show them something or if I'm trying to keep tabs mentally of like, you know, it's sort of like strikes and balls in baseball. You know, you got my, you can have a counter there, like a flush counter, right? For birds, you could be like, okay, well, I see one. The dog did not pick up on that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so you can sort of gauge how your dog's doing as, as it progresses, as it matures. But, um, you know, the dog will find a squirrel, say it'll run and chase it up a tree, just like any old lab will do. Or they'll wind a layup that's laying, you know, it's up on a branch. Maybe you've never, never came to the ground yet sitting in the sun, just, you know, catching some rays up there. Um, and then they'll, they'll also hear them chewing on, on a nut, you know, cutting, we call it, or they will mm. hear, hear a squirrel barking and they'll run in and tree it. Uh, they'll hear rustling on the ground. They love to l- stop, look and listen. Like they'll get to the edge of a hill, like crest of a hill and stop and look and listen. If there's a squirrel on the ground, then they'll, they'll just charge in. 
and sometimes catch them on the ground. Literally, they'll, you don't have to shoot them. They'll catch wow. the squirrel. Yeah, or they'll they'll tree it. Um, and then they hold the they hold the squirrel there. You come in and and uh, you know dispatch the animal, harvest the animal. Um, and then by the time usually if the action is good, by the time you're done talking about what just happened, they're treated again. And so you just piggyback like that through the timber. And we hunt, you know, a, a dog or two, up to three at a time. Um, better when they're learning to hunt them on their own, so they don't get other bad habits from other dogs. Sure. But um, yeah, we call them a me too dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one dog will tree, and I was like, "Yeah, me too." And they'll just bark, and they don't know what they're barking about. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we go and and uh, you'll have some dogs that hunt closer than others, and and so like one, the close dog will tree, and then you shoot that squirrel, and then the dog will sort of you know will come around behind it and will have treed another one, and so you can just you can just uh, hopscotch like that, piggyback off one another, yeah, and it, like it gets fun. you know they split tree in different directions, and you had to like split your hunting party up. You know, you three go to that squirrel, and you two go to that squirrel, and we'll we'll get them and we'll meet back, you know? So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and a lot of action. It's a good way to get together with people and travel around the country. And, and, uh, you know, you get to see dog work. It's never boring because the dog's always doing something. Um, you know, yeah. you know, yeah, it's exciting so. to watch them roll and stuff sometimes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds like, that sounds like a lot of fun and it sounds like you're, you're, uh, you know, to that point, and you kind of were mentioning this earlier in the conversation where you start to, you know, view limits and, and things like that differently. It's not all about hitting your limits. Yeah. It's for you. Yeah, no. Yeah. We take our kids with us and they're eight and under, um, you know, and they're, they're learning about woods and learning their trees and, and chasing frogs and, you know, everything else, you know, until this time of year, but it's, um, you know, they love being out there and, and handling the dogs and, paying attention to what they're doing and following the dog. And, and it's just, just spending time outside. I mean, we're in the timber six or eight months a year, you know? Wow. So some, yeah. So, some, or, or, you know, if somebody goes, you know, I've got a lot of pressure, I've got to go deer hunt these two weeks. I'm like, fine, go do that. I'll leave you alone. Like, um, I'll go somewhere else because, you know, if I see a truck somewhere, I'll go somewhere else because I've got the time, you know? Um, yeah. and, and I think that should be an appeal for a lot of people is like, you don't, you don't have to just hunt just during the, you know, rifle deer season. I mean, you've got in Missouri, the season opens in May and it runs through the middle of February. It's closing tomorrow where I live right now. So wow. uh, at the end of, at the end of February, um, and then we've got dog training, you know, some States have a chase, a chase season, like for coons, you know, yeah. we, can, you know we, we actually work to get Virginia to expand the dog squirrel, the squirrel dog training to year round. So, I'm out there playing with the ticks and the snakes and the mosquitoes and the spiders. You know, I've eaten more spider webs than I care to admit, um, <laughs> nice. but you know, you know, I'm surprised I don't have Lyme disease or yeah. you know, some other thing, but knock um, on wood, man. Knock on I wood. was about to say, man, don't, don't jinx yourself. <laughs> but, but, but the point is like, you know, I've had hundreds of ticks on me. You know, if people go, Oh, I saw a tick. I'm like one, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. uh, I, I picked more of that off the dog. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's just a good opportunity to be outside. And we just see so much, you notice so much when you're in timber that long, you want to pattern some game. I mean, like, you know, last Turkey I shot, I was squirrel hunting dogs, flushed a woodcock and was like, Oh, that's cool. And then, uh, I saw these turkeys. And I was like, okay, we'll come back later. Um, so it's, it's fun that way. And these dogs, you can train them to do basically anything they'll run a rabbit. They'll catch a rabbit too. They'll run rabbits toward each other and catch them they're like coyotes they're, they're almost like a feral dog i mean they're like a wolf. <laughs> you know i mean they're, they're like i think they would survive just fine in the woods without us but um that's sort of the appeal like they just ran around loose on the farms in appalachia and didn't need a lot of hand holding 
Um, and the, you know, the good ones stuck around and the bad ones didn't get kept. So we've been <laughs> the beneficiary of, of, uh, some pretty hard, you know, some stern breeding practices that have made really good, solid, healthy dogs. Um, and you know, they'll, they'll flush birds. You know, I can pheasant hunt with them. I, I've, wow. and wild, wild birds. I mean, I flush grouse with them in Maine, prairie chickens and sharp tail grouse with them in South Dakota. You know, I, they're, they're just they're easy to break off what you don't want you know like my dogs are broke off deer they won't only pay attention to a deer they'll tree next to deer running running out of the hedgerow um they don't care but um you know they're they're just so adaptable um like uh, people use them for turkey dogs they'll bust a flock with the dog call them back to them sit down and then pretend you're a turkey call the turkeys back in um and if people use for, for coyote decoy dogs i've got one in search and rescue in colorado looking for lost hikers um so i mean there's just they're just really intelligent dogs and that's the risk right we don't want that to be their downfall they they make great pets but we're trying to keep them working right um right that's and that's and that's tough you know because everybody sees a a 30 or less you know smaller dog and they go oh that'd be great for my old aunt you know to have in the the house like yeah they are but they need to hunt yeah they they've got to get out so and it's it, it's something that we're trying to keep an eye on and we try to place our dogs in, in hunting homes. And so that's why I'm working so hard to recruit more hunters too, because if I place a dog with them, I, I don't want the dog to sit in the kennel right? You know, or sit in, in, in the house and, and not do anything. Um, they love their people and they adapt a lot of people, but they've got to hunt. Mm-hmm. They're much happier. They're a different dog. Yeah. So if you're uh, listening to this and you're thinking about getting a hunting dog, you know, we just had a few episodes ago, we had a, a team Lone Oak and they were on here talking about their rabbit beagles. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're not, if you're not sure how much rabbit hunting you want to do, and maybe you're thinking the squirrel hunting sounds a whole lot, like a whole lot of fun. sounds like you need to check out the mountain feist. So, uh, we'll, uh, actually leave some information at the end of this episode here for how you can get in contact with, with Marcus and, and, uh, maybe, uh, see if he, uh, has a dog that's ready for you down the road, but that would, that, that you, you, I think you hit it on the head there at the end. You know, I have a couple of bird dogs and, and, uh, I feel guilty what, you know, not getting them out often enough to hunt just because, mm-hmm. I mean, they they are <laughs> never more alive you know than when they're when they're chasing pheasants and quail and the yeah. occasional rabbit you know they that's yeah. when that's when they're you know in their height of glory <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i mean just as an all-around farm dog you know if you want to keep the groundhog out of the garden or you want to keep the coon out of the chicken coop you know and that's that this that's what they were bred to do and then somebody would pick up a gun and say let's go and then they hit the timber and they would tree and, and find game for people because you know in appalachia um the mass production the oak the acorn crop every year is just is just hit or miss so you don't know if you sit in a patch of, of, of oaks if you're going to have the squirrel numbers that you want sure. to have so you got to cover a lot of ground um and you find out in short order with the dog whether or not there's there's anything worth worth pursuing in there um and you know they warn you like our dogs they'll if they run up on somebody in a deer stand or sitting on the side of the trail or whatever, they'll run back to me. They'll bark. They'll go, bo, bo, and then run back at me. And like, did you know there's a dude over there? Um, and <laughs> so it's, it's pretty handy with that, you know, for hunter safety aspects, you know, I can avoid people. I can go around. Uh, so I don't impact anybody else's hunt, you know? Um, but also just so I know they're there and they know I'm there, but the dogs will do that. They'll bark at somebody and they come to your house 
they're not mean to people, but you know that somebody's there. And that was their job historically. You know, you're living on the frontier next to this big patch of woods and a bear just comes walking through your yard. They're going to tell you that it's there, you know, and yeah. um, you, can, you can deal with the with the threat or the danger, you know, at whatever it may be. Yeah, sound like cool dogs. They're really good dogs. Yep, a lot of a lot of lot to be gained if you get yourself a hunting dog. It's something that, mm-hmm. and you know what? It I have found, and I imagine Marcus would agree with me here. Even when you don't bag an animal, maybe you miss, maybe uh, for some reason it doesn't work out. For what happens yeah. for pheasant hunting all the time is, you know, they point a hen and you can't shoot a hen. So <laughs> I, it doesn't matter though. I mean, you you feel so much like. I don't know, proud of the moment, all that yeah. success of just seeing them, you know, follow through on their training. And, and, uh, it's, and it's just a lot of fun to see their instincts at work and, and them using their own strength to, to oh, yeah. be a hunting buddy. So yeah, yeah a finished, really cool. a finished dog doesn't need the meat every time. Right. Praise is, is sufficient. They know what they're after They you know, and, and you know what, that's, that's another benefit is when I do miss <laughs> or I cripple something, they'll catch them. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yep. so they're like, yeah. good job. They tell me good job, you know, that, but, um, you know, I, I've gotten some looks that you wouldn't believe from these dogs and they go, what are you shooting at? You know, <laughs> like, what, yeah. what are we doing? You know, it's like, they're going to leave me home and go on their own. <laughs> yep. Yep. They look at you with that look of, well, at least I held up my end of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you need yep. some help. I've and gotten... I'll say that online, you know, I'll say that online, like send shooters, you know, cause, uh, you know, we need help. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. And we try to have a shotgun and a rifle with us at, at any given time and just get for the adaptability of it. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just good to be out in the timber and, you know, just being part of the seasons and seeing the progression every year. And it's, it never, it's never boring. There's always something going on. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's kind of transition to that now too. You know, you mentioned there, you like to have a shotgun and a rifle together yeah. and, and, uh, you know, I think that's a something where this episode is going to be most helpful is, you know, hopefully there's people that can get in with somebody who's got some squirrel dogs. But if not, you know, we'd yeah. still rather you get out there and even without yes. the dogs and, and try and give it a go. But uh, what should somebody be be uh, looking at if, you know, they don't have dogs? It's just going to be them, you know, as far as. Uh, what kind of firearms should they bring? Should they be still hunting? Should they try to be really mm-hmm. mobile and just, you know, kind of roaming the timber? What's the best way to hunt squirrels if you don't have dogs? Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier. You can't is buy a license. They are they are a regulated <laughs> game animal with yeah. a season and a bag yeah. limit. Um, but it, the there are two main methods of, of hunting squirrels without a dog. There's still hunting, which you just mentioned, and stand hunting, which the terms can be somewhat confusing if you're not familiar. But but still hunting means that you're uh, moving slowly from one right. spot to another relatively quickly, but it's still pretty slow. Right. Um, and stand hunting is you pick a spot and you sort of post up or you, you hunker down. You know, traditionally, the the way it was described was, you know, be, become a bump on a log, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Lit, lit moss grow on your back like these old timers <laughs> and um you just you know you're just still you just find a likely patch of woods i like to sit on a place that's um somewhat elevated so like the, the top of a ditch or a draw where you can see a little bit of bottom but you're also kind of higher up to where the squirrels are at um and uh you can locate by a, a likely den tree like you'll see the chew fresh chew markings around the den hole um, sure. 
and uh, or or fresh nests, uh, an active squirrel nest will actually be fluffy, more ball shaped than one that might not be used and be flatter and falling apart. Um, you see a lot of hawk nests that are mostly sticks. The squirrel nests will have leaves, so you know don't look at old owl and hawk nests that have that are just sticks. But you know you'll find a nice round nest, and uh, you you sit there for. You know, once you get there, clear out the leaves from under where your feet are going to be and all this sort of thing. And, and uh, so if you do need to move, you don't make any noise. Sure. And um, you just think about melting into your surroundings, right? You try to put your back up against a, a big tree or a rock or the hill itself. You know, the safety aspect of that is good, but also um, it breaks up your outline. And um, try to have the sun at your back. You know, all these general hunting rules of thumb um, apply here. And uh, sit for... 30 to 45 minutes an hour you know when you think you need to move wait five more minutes um and yeah. it, it can be it can be arduous cool. you know? i mean i went to i went to college in maine and and uh it gets cold and <laughs> you know my fellow hunters were like how can you sit still so long and i'm like because that's what we were trained to do it was like beat into us like you just you just don't move you move uh -huh. your eyes but even you don't even turn your head quickly you don't, you don't reach up and smack a mosquito on your face, you know, like you, you move with intention and deliberate, you know, and that helped me in my career as well. When you're dealing with like an anesthetized animal, you don't want to give them a lot of stimuli because it can actually cause the drug to not work and they'll wake up. You know, it's like you keep your, keep your voice low. You move really slow and deliberate. You don't want to agitate anything. You know, it's all been very helpful in my, in my, in my career even, but, um, you, you just, you sit and wait and watch and listen and if you don't see any squirrel activity, then you can get up and move to another spot and sort of repeat the process. But but still hunting, you're standing most of the time. You move. It's almost like you know one step forward, two steps back. You're moving. I mean, it's arduously so. It's not. We're not walking in the mall here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're. It's like I'm going to take a step every five minutes, sort of a thing. I mean, it's slow. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> and um, because you're looking for a flash of movement you're not looking for the whole squirrel. Generally you're looking for the tail or an ear, you know, ear sticking up above a branch or right. their back, their back in the fork of a tree, something like that. Um, you know, that's the mistake people make is they tend to look for the whole animal. You're not going to see the whole animal usually unless they're running away from you and they already mm, know you're, you're, busted, you're busted already. Um, but you, you move with, you know, just this stillness about everything and, and your foot placement is very important. You don't want to step on any sticks. Like I mentioned earlier, believe me um but even the the way the way you walk is like you do heel toe but it's you roll from the outside of your foot in and you're just that much you're just so much quieter and you know that's how we were taught and it was like is it really making me quieter or is it just making me think about where i'm putting my feet right <laughs> but yep. I, it seems to i'm i'm quieter than my kid i weigh 250 pounds my kid who's four makes more noise walking on crunchy leaves than I do. <laughs> so I think I'm onto something. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, but it definitely does work. And you know, if there, it's been a light rain, um, the leaves are less crunchy and that's, that's a good time to go. Um, if there is a light rain, it's a perfect time to go. Squirrels will be active. You know, think about fishing. People always like to fish in the bad weather. I mean, bad weather to a reason, you know, light rain, you know, but, um, same thing for squirrels. Like they move really well when, when it's a little bit of drizzle, not pouring. They don't like to be soaking wet they don't like ice, you know, but, um, cause they're running on the limbs. If limbs are covered in ice, it's not, you know, they're falling and stuff, but they, um, they will lay up for periods of time, but they don't hibernate. Um, they've got to eat. So be rest assured that they're going to come back out at some point to eat. Um, and, 
you try to go out. We used to get up, you know, it was, I, I joke and I said that, you know, dad used to wake me up, you know, he's before, before his son come, he said, Mark, squirrel's getting away. Mark, squirrel's getting away. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, but he was right though, because especially gray squirrels, they get up so early, you know, and that you got to be out there before the sun comes up in a lot of cases, especially if you're hunting a food source like mulberries or something like you've got to get in and sit there and be ready because they're going to come filtering in. It's like a revolving buffet. You know, you can get your whole limit sitting in a mulberry tree, um, just not moving. And uh, it's the same thing from the breeding season. You know, when they're chasing each other, you'll get multiple squirrels in a tree. Um, so the action can be can be pretty cool in that way. But um, you know, this, the whole still hunting thing is you're just you're looking and listening. You stop and pause. And it's good to hunt a pair. And you try to stagger the way you're walking. It's, it's not like um, bird hunting where you walk in a straight line abreast, like next, you know, shoulder to shoulder. You, you do want to be somewhat staggered um, so that when sure. one person passes a tree, you're still on the other side of the tree um, because the squirrel will spin around. And so when the first hunter passes, the squirrel exposes itself to the second hunter. Um, and, mm. but if you have, a, but if you have, if you have a group, you know, walking abreast like that through the timber does work. Cause then you're, the squirrels going around the side of the tree to somebody. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting in that, in that way, but usually you hunt by yourself or with another person. It's, it's not normally a group affair just because, you know, you're, you're more likely to be noticed. But um, one of the, some of the best uh, still hunting I ever did was on my grandparents' farm. My uncle had a couple of horses. You know, they're just hay burners. They weren't really good for anything. But they <laughs> um, they would follow me through the timber. <laughs> they followed me through the timber, and I could walk along. The squirrels didn't pay me any attention at all. And uh, thankfully, the, the horses weren't scared of gunfire. <laughs> but um, you know, we'd walk we'd walk along through the timber, me and the horses, and uh, I'd shoot squirrels from between the horses. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, because awesome. the squirrels are used to them. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, it, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can you can do and, and get involved with. And, you know, I get asked sometimes, you know, what's the, the highest number of squirrels you ever saw in a tree? And I go, 18. Like, what are you talking about? Like, my, my, my cousin Scott and I were slipping down the hedgerow on my grandparents' farm, and we hear this cut and just. And it was just like a lot of that what the heck is going on? And, uh, and this one little Oak tree in this, in the corner of this, this field was just loaded with acorns and there were, there were 18 gray squirrels in it. And we just looked at each other. I mean, we couldn't talk and, and we just sort of decided, you know, to pick one each, <laughs> you know, wow. and, and we shot, I'm pretty sure I missed mine. I think Scott got his, but there are squirrels everywhere. They were running across our feet, jumping over our heads, running between us, going out in the field. <laughs> I mean, they're running up and down the hedgerow, running up and down the tree they were in. It was like a gallery shoot. You're like, what is going on? Um, so it's you just never know what you're going to see when you're out there and being quiet. Yeah, yeah, that's a sounds like a primary tip there. You know, just <laughs> just uh, staying quiet. And it's the same thing with with deer hunting too. Honestly, I mean, yeah you get you get kind of bored sometimes you know where you're sitting there and yep nothing's really happening and and so you you know you lose a little bit of patience and you know you maybe start sighing a little bit while you're you're uh, <laughs> sitting there or you start rustling through all your snacks or whatever <laughs> and, and right. You, right. You, you start to you start to ruin your opportunity a little bit so that's a it's a it's a big part of it a ton of other little tips in there too though i mean i, I really like yeah, the one about the, the rain you know yeah of course of course you know I, I try to do the same thing when i'm hunting deer you know take advantage of those wet leaves but 
the actual hunting oh, yeah. hunting in the rain you know that's that's a that's a good little tip well you just you just learn learn to be patient um just like i said with being slow around animals that you're working up you know, we were we were rocket netting ducks for for banding and uh stampling for avian influenza in a former life and um you get up at three o'clock in the morning and you go set up roll out the net set up the rockets and go hide in your little blind or and it's like yeah you got to sit there for two hours and just not move and a lot of people can't do that <laughs> you yeah. know? um and so it's it's good training for that sort of stuff you know it's, and historically you read all the the accounts of civil war soldiers revolutionary war soldiers uh, even up into world war one with like uh alvin york from tennessee and stuff like that like you know, how'd you get to be such a good shot? You know, squirrels, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. at the end of the civil war, when they had to stack their arms, they're like, well, I'm going to need this. <laughs> I can't, I can't leave this gun. I need this for squirrels. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, it was definitely a part of our culture and heritage for a long time. But as other things became available, people switched and, and forgot about the fact that um, we relied on squirrel meat um, more than we definitely do today. But, um, we, we do eat them and, and it's good fun to go hunt. And, and I just think there's, it's good for people to reconnect with the past and, and learn about how people made a living off the land, because as recent events have shown us, it's, it's sometimes it comes back and you mm. need to be able to have those skills. Yeah. Well, speaking of the food side of this, um, before we, you know, kind of the last main thing I want to hit here about squirrel mm-hmm. hunting before we, uh, learn how to, or tell listeners how to, track you down and follow along with yep. what you're doing what are your two go-to uh recipes for squirrel well it's hard to pick just two and i'm not just dodging the question <laughs> if you but... got three that's okay <laughs> yeah, 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 no i mean i i i really like um a, a pot pie is good um traditionally Yum. yeah traditionally fried is, is very common um you know just just think of think of frying a chicken uh yes it's very similar to that um but like i said i've i've had i've had them so many different ways you know i've had squirrel casserole you know so i mean it's it's hard to pin down any one any one thing it's like what's your favorite beef dish i don't know um (laughs) steak it's a big steak yeah it's a big chunk of meat but it's you know there's there's so much versatility to it and um i think those uh those squirrel cakes we made for that uh fundraiser were really popular sort of like i wish we made more because they went really fast but um you know the garlic parmesan squirrel legs was really good but don't discount using the backs and things too um especially if you're making soup soup stocks and things like that um but there's they're just there's very versatile animal that you can use in, in a lot of dishes and it's fairly easy to get off off the bone and processing it isn't as hard as people might think um actually i've I've had videos and there are videos out there other videos out there about um how to skin a squirrel uh how best to do it we we tend to go through we call the the tail method because there was never any name for it before um at least that we used it was just skinning a squirrel so um (laughs) you know it's you cut at the base of the tail and put your the the ball of your foot uh on the on the end of the tail up against the rump and um pull up on the feet and it just comes off like a shirt and then you're left with a little triangle of, of hair there on the belly. And you just get under that skin and pull up and take the pants off. You know, it's it's pretty straightforward. And you can do one in under a minute once you get pretty slick at it. And, wow. uh, you know, if you mess it up and pop the tail off, you can still skin them like a rabbit. You know, split them up the middle and, and pull. I'm not that stout, 
but I do hunt with people that are like my dad's really stout. I can do it. Um, and I hunt with the deputy sheriff in the South side of Virginia and he likes to pull them just, you know, just, just out front. He'll, he'll pull them just like a rabbit, but squirrels have pretty thick hide. And, uh, I, I always yeah, have better do. luck with the, with the <laughs> tail, with the tail method. I always have better luck. Huh. That's interesting. Now, one thing that I, I do know with my limited squirrel experience is that squirrels have very fine hairs that can yeah. very easily get transferred from yeah. the hide to the uh, back straps, for lack of a better yeah. term. And, right. and uh, that can be a real turnoff for people. Now, I've heard of some people using, I think people even do this on like deer. We use like a little blowtorch or something to kind of singe the hairs off. Or, oh, like, a, like a hog? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Or uh, they'll uh, maybe, you know, put it in some hot water and try and get it off that way. Any uh, yeah. any tips for that besides just don't get it on there in the first place? <laughs> well, yeah, that's always a good start. But no, um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like everything else in life. You know, people maybe these days aren't as good as people probably were in the past about it. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, nobody's perfect. But, um, you know, give me an example. I was, I'd skin one squirrel at a time. My grandpa would do three and have them gutted. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a different, yeah. you know, when you do it every day for food, you have to do it. Um, it just, it makes everything different, but, um, you know, this, <laughs> the method I'm talking about doing the tail, you know, starting at the base of the tail and cutting that and pulling on that, um, that reduces the risk of getting hair on them significantly because it's all one motion sure it's when you, yeah. when, you get to, when you get to handling it too much or trying to cut with a knife too much i mean i use a I use a knife to start it and then i pull and the only times i use a knife after that are to cut off the feet and the head so yeah. i'm not sawing on anything i'm not loosing those that fur to get onto everything and if i'm if i'm touching something or if i have to touch the hide i'll dip my hand in water before i touch the squirrel again to try to just try to get the hair off hmm. uh, which makes it really terrible if you touch it again because you're gonna get a lot of hair in your hands yeah. so you end up doing it a <laughs> yeah. lot but um you know if you get your hands bloody in the process that will cause hair to stick to things too yeah. so you just have to be mindful of that but yeah if you do get any on it you can um run it under i um i actually use cool water just because i'm trying to cool them down anyway and um you can rub on the you know this, there's those connective tissues right above the muscle between the muscle and the skin that mm -hmm. are sort of like tacky yeah, but you can rub that and, and get those to come off most of the time. Um, and we tend to soak squirrels anyway. Um, put them in a, in a bowl, um, put a little salt in the water, and then put oh, them in the fridge. good old brine. Yeah, and, yeah like, so yeah. Yeah, they'll, they'll puff up and get more tender and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it's when you're doing all that, you can, you can tend to either pick off hairs that you missed or rinse them off. Sure. Um, usually, yeah. So my wife will let me know if I miss any. <laughs> so. <laughs> any uh any tricks for uh making sure you don't have any uh lead shot in your just shoot them in the head with a rifle no. <laughs> there you go there you go yeah but um no i i, I hunt mostly with a with a, a 22 um with iron sights and i you know i'm okay you know but i i get a lot of neck shots for some reason but anyway um you know it's it's you'd be surprised you shoot them with a shotgun i i use a 20 gauge or my wife will use a 20 gauge and um squirrels because of that thick hide you'll knock them out of the tree you know the concussion of the shot will knock them out of the tree in our case the dogs will, will will catch them then but um you'd be amazed at how few pellets actually make it through that that hide and you can be fairly close now you sure. might get one you know you end up with like a heart shot or it'll get them in the head um i try to place shots that like if you are going to use a shotgun 
you lead them just like you would do a bird or anything else. Okay, um, yeah. So you're, you're getting most of the shot toward the head anyway, but yeah, it's, you can see them when you skin them out. A lot will come off when you, when you skin with, with the hide, um, will fall out from between, you know, ding, 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 you know, on the ground you go, Oh, well, those came out. But if they get, if they get trapped, if they get trapped under the, under the meat, you can see that and, and, uh, you know, open that up and, and, and get it to come out. But it's, um, a lot of shot anymore, even if they're lead they're, they tend to be coated in zinc or something like that. So it's not, there's not so much a toxicity issue as the risk of biting down on something and breaking a tooth. So right. um, you just have to be careful of that, you know, like granny say with a quail, you can't get them all, but, um, <laughs> you do, you do try to limit the amount of shot in these things, but, um, anymore, there's states that are going to uh, non-toxic shot for a small game, especially on public land that like, gets to the dove season. You're talking about like, there's some states that are switching, um, to non-toxic <laughs> shot. Um, but I, I use lead, um, still because it's available. Um, and if I do use a different metal, um, I'll, I'll tend to go down a size or, or a larger number, um, in the, in the shot size. So like I'll, I'll get duck loads, like four shots, something like that. If I'm going to be on a place that requires it okay, or yeah. the only thing available, but I use six shot for lead, uh, most of the time. And I don't have a lot of problems with, with pellets. It's, you hear that a lot, especially in, in the circles that I grew up in hunting in Missouri, where everybody, everybody hunts with a rifle. Nobody hunts squirrel with a shotgun. Um, ever. And, um, I got a lot of flack when, whenever I started using a shotgun sometimes and, um, because gray squirrels showed up and, um, you know, there's a lot wilder. They run around a lot more and, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been like, you know, whenever they come by, I'm like, look, see squirrels, here's the carcass, (laughs) not full of shot. Yeah. Um, but there's fewer people that care anymore. Yeah. Sadly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, good. yeah, those are all great tips. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say this now, just cause we kind of mentioned it earlier in the show. If you are feeding somebody game, always be sure to go the extra mile to be careful about stuff like that, because oh, yeah. you can really turn somebody off really quick if they break a, <laughs> break a tooth and need a crown because um, they, uh... it's pretty, it's pretty rare. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is a risk potentially, and it's no different than if you're hunting a turkey, you know, yeah. um, yep. it's probably more of a risk with a turkey or, you know, cause they're just, their, their skin's so much softer or, you know, thinner. Um, and there's more meat to hide in. <laughs> that's yeah, that's for sure. But you can see, you know, it's just like shooting a turkey. You just, you'll see the entrance, you know, and mm-hmm. you can tell if it went on through or not. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, it just comes with the experience of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And my go-to thing, like if you're really nervous about it, um, like I'm pretty sure if I ended up accidentally feeding a pellet to my wife, she would uh, never eat that thing ever again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just shred, like when I shoot a pheasant or something, I do mm-hmm. almost like a, you know, jerk chicken or something, you know, where you just, yeah. you're just, or pulled pork or pulled chicken, you know, you're just cleaning it all off the bone. And uh, that way it's, you know, very unlikely that you're gonna pass some shot onto somebody so well that's true with bones i mean if you're talking about trout or anything you know it's yeah it's too, all about yeah. it's all about handling I mean, you know if you put a squirrel in a crock pot it's a fine line between you know getting it to where it's tender you can get off the bone or making it disintegrate into a pile of bones with meat so you just it's easier if you get sort of like right before it falls apart you know yeah. that's where you want to be because you know vertebrae and all that stuff so um because it may not be shot, but there could be other hard things you got to watch right, out for. Yeah. 
um, yeah, when you're cool. when you're making them. But I've I've always been more on the eating side rather than the cooking side. But I have tried to expand my uh, experience in that side just because there's so few people anymore that are cooking. Yeah, so. that's that's uh, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, you don't want you don't want bones in there either. But yeah, yeah, we can only do so much though. So, but it's worth putting in your best effort and trying to make it a, a you know a special thing and not something that you know people feel like they have to tolerate to keep you happy. It's worth right. it's worth learning those recipes, and I'm glad to hear you're a briner as well. Brining is oh, yeah. the way to go on on any whether it's game meat or grocery store meat. Brining mm-hmm. brining is going to make that better for for you. But yeah, that's oh cool. yeah, and, and it and it removes any sort of issue. I mean, squirrels don't have a lot of problem with quote unquote gamey flavor, but other things do. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's like you know, like when we're cooking bear meat or something, you know, it, or deer meat. It's like Italian dressing is your best friend, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> just put, just put, and, and it's the same for squirrels. Just, just put the meat in with some Italian dressing in a, in the Ziploc, you know, or, or in a vacuum sealer bag and put it in the fridge for a while. You know, it's and it comes out so much better. I mean, you can't even tell that you're eating anything different. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just a good way to go because that it starts to break it down a little bit and, and really gets the flavor infused in there. So it's it's just a good good practice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Marcus, we are so thankful again for you coming on tonight. And before you go, how can listeners track you down and follow along with uh, some of the content that you put out and uh, also uh, check out your uh, kennel as well? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Kent and Alex. It's been good talking oh, with you. Oh, sure. And hopefully, yeah, you one as well, days, man. hopefully one of these days we'll be able to get together for a hunt. That would uh, be cool. We're, we're sort of our, – our squirrel dogs right now are kind of like a – a sports team where you graduate your seniors. We're, um, <laughs> we're rebuilding at the moment, but, um, yeah, we got, <laughs> training, training some young dogs, but they're coming along and I've got some, some dogs that are, you know, I've got an eight year old female and I've got uh, a male that's a little over a year and a female that's, that's uh, about two and a half. And so, um, we're, we're dangerous in the timber anyway, you know, we, we can be effective, but, um, you know, it's, you're always trying to improve things and, and dog breeding and the genetics and, and hunting, you know, hunting traits and passing those on and improving the stock and things like that are, you know, very, very time consuming, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I something that, so. I, that I enjoy, but, um, yeah, I just, it, it's been good talking with you and, um, you know, we're, we're on social media, um, graze mountain um.com is our, our website. We're on, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Um, I think we're on Instagram too. Um, you know, and it's, we just have a lot of fun with it, trying to get more people involved get, get folks outdoors. We introduce people to hunting. We go, we take people out, um, that have never been before. We, we place dogs with people. We have had youth raffles for puppies in the past, um, you know, to approve homes, obviously that are hunting, but, you know, to try to get youth involved and, um, even, even made a couple DVDs that, you know, we don't have those available right now, but, um, in the past we've had these DVDs just showing people how this works and how they can get involved and what, what to expect from a, a puppy all the way up through an adult dog. So um, we do spend a lot of time on that. And, and uh, hopefully whether people get into squirrel dogs or not, hopefully they'll at least give squirrel hunting a try uh, this next season. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you, you're going to want to follow along. If you're listening to this, you're going to want to follow along with what Marcus does. He, d- he absolutely puts up, you know, quite a bit of squirrel hunting content, but also just like we had opened up the show with, 
good content on conservation issues that are going on. And, and it's not always this doom and gloom. Oh, we're losing more pollen. No, he, uh, in fact, I would say a lot of the stuff, most of the stuff that, that Marcus posts are examples of, of people who are, uh, making a positive difference and who are, uh, coming up with some great out of the box ideas for how to, how to uh, use the landscape a little bit more effectively. And, and uh, I think you'll, you'll find that he is a very thoughtful guy who um, is, is all about making uh, the outdoors better and uh, sustainable into the future. So I, I uh, would strongly encourage anyone to follow along with him. And then of course, uh, make sure you uh, check out our co-host tonight, Mr. Alex Gruen, go over to alexgruen.com. You can check out everything he has to offer there with his business, East to West Hunts. There's some new uh, some new services there that Alex is offering, some uh, subscriptions mm-hmm. that uh, people can uh, jump on board with. And, and uh, uh, Alex, could you uh, give maybe like a 30-second uh, explanation for what those subscription services are that just came out? Yeah, I, I launched essentially a uh, either a monthly or an annual uh, membership, so you can be a member of East to West Hunts, and it's it's more catered towards the do-it-yourself guy, sure. or somebody just uh, dabbling in it and wanting to get some more information, and down the road maybe wanting to upgrade to some more services. So uh, you get to talk to me whenever you want pick my brain we go over gear uh talk about hunt consulting and uh kind of lay out a plan for you and all that is part of the membership uh throughout the year and then if uh, down the road you draw a tag you want some hunt planning or whatever the case is you can always add extra stuff down the line but uh definitely a cool cool thing that i've been wanting to offer and finally was able to uh, get it going yeah definitely check that out Take that extra step and uh, head over to alexgruen.com to get started on that. And then, of course, our uh, beloved Brandon is uh, tied up tonight. He's got some family stuff going on, so he couldn't join in, which is too bad because uh, not that we, we we don't like having Alex here, but it would have been fun to have all four of us in on this conversation because <laughs> I know that know that Brandon likes hunting squirrels a lot too. But uh, make sure uh, you uh, remember him and, and his, his team. Head over to thehuntfishlife.com. And of course, as always, I say it all the time, you'll find all of uh, their social media links there and head over to their gear shop, get loaded up on some uh, HFL gear and represent that great channel. And uh, when you're done with all that, head over to firstgenhunter.com. You'll find my links to Instagram, Facebook, Go Wild, which by the way, um, I believe we have three Go Wild users on the call tonight. <laughs> oh yeah, yes that's, sir. That's that's an <laughs> that's awesome official. thing. And uh, Brad is actually a uh, mutual friend for both uh, Marcus and I, and uh, just doing a, an incredible uh, work there with Go Wild. That's of course Brad Latrell from uh, episode forty. And uh, make sure uh, if you aren't yet on Go Wild, get get into that game and. And uh, you'll get to see great content from people like Marcus and follow, you know, a trail that is about squirrel hunting. And, uh, yeah, so make sure you guys all head head to those channels. Again, Marcus, thank you so much for joining tonight. Alex, thank you for coming in on short notice. And uh, Yeah, my pleasure. You guys Thanks take for care. Yeah, for sure. You guys take care of yourselves. And uh, to those of you listening in, we love you. We're so glad to have you as part of the First Gen family. And make sure uh, as all of hunting season winds down until turkeys start up here again soon, be sure to take care 
and take someone hunting.